Okay, um, <clears throat> what to pray for? Talk five. I guess uh, most people, even uh, non-believers, will at some point find themselves calling out to God in prayer. Um, almost everybody, I think, finds themselves at some point at that moment of crisis needing the power that only God can give. It might be one of those terrible moments when you actually face death, um, the seconds before a car crash, when the oxygen mask drops down in the aeroplane, or that moment when the doctor pronounces a terminal illness. Please, God, help me. Please, God, heal her. When there is some massive need that is crucial to our life but we realize we're at the end of our resources we cry out to God we look for help from a higher power please God if you're there make this thing go away please God if you're there get me that job help me to pass that exam help me to win this match please God let her notice me What all of these examples have in common is the belief that through prayer, a human being can access the divine power and that divine power can intervene and change things in our world. That there is some reality above these problems. There is someone out there who might just be able to control these things, someone who can mend a cancerous body, alter the direction of a football, influence someone's heart, things that are impossible for humans to do. And so we can sum up this understanding of prayer in the phrase that are put on the sheet, asking God to do his thing. That is, as we've seen, prayer is asking God. It's not a way that God speaks to us, neither is it some kind of offering we make to God. It is Basically, and there's obviously more to say than this, but basically it is us asking God. It's a bottom-up activity. And as those examples remind us, it is asking God to do his thing, asking God to do what only he can do. And so all of those examples where people pray at the moment of crisis are actually perfectly correct and biblical. There is a God in heaven who can do all of those things. There is a creator over his creation, not part of the creation, but over it, in control of it. It makes total sense to pray in that way. But that is not saying enough. Because last week, or the week before, was it? We saw that prayer is actually the unique privilege of the Christian. Of course, if you are an atheist and you are facing that moment of car-crashing, death-defying, crucial need, then of course, you can pray. And there's a sense in which God will hear that prayer because he is there. But what we've seen in the Bible is that prayer is actually the unique privilege of the children of God. And that is the crucial New Testament insight that Jesus gives us, that he teaches us to pray not to God, G-O-D, but to our Father, our Father in heaven. 
It's a different way of thinking. It tells us that prayer is the unique privilege of the Christian because those who are in Christ are uniquely related to God. He has forgiven our sins, as we've just sung. He has died on the cross in our place. He has made us his children. And so prayer is not just asking God to do something. It is actually coming to our Heavenly Father, which means, second point on the outline, praying to somebody who is able and willing. I think we looked at this last time, but just think about those two words again. Heavenly and Father tells us everything we need to know, doesn't it? Heavenly tells us he is able. He is the God above the line that separates the creation from the creator. But Father tells us that he is willing, that he's brought us into this relationship, that he is not only powerful, but he is personal and he can do what we ask. So I wonder if you just turn up in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to uh, sit there in Matthew 9 for the whole talk. We're not going to do any other Bible flipping, I don't think. And here we find that most famous of all prayers, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Sorry, did I say Matthew 9? Matthew 6, thank you, yeah. Matthew 6, 9 to 14. And in verse 9, it begins like this. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. So that's what Jesus teaches us. We have this unique privilege to speak to one who is able and willing. And I think what I've just said kind of sums up everything we've seen so far. But what are we meant to pray about? If I've got a Father in heaven who is able and willing, can I pray for anything that I like? Can I pray for an Audi R8? Because I just fancy one. I did see one drive past the other day and I thought, that's a nice looking car. Could I rightly pray for an Audi R8? Because I fancy one and certainly God could provide one if he wanted to. Are there some sorts of prayers that are better to pray than others? Would that be a wrong prayer? Would that be an unbiblical prayer, an ungodly prayer? Are some prayers better to pray and worse? This also touches on the question we looked at last time, which is, does prayer actually change anything? If God really is outside this world and in control of all things, does it actually make a difference when we pray? Well, to answer some of those questions, let's begin with the direction of prayer. As with most things, there is a right way and a wrong way to look at these things. There is a way of looking at these questions with human logic. And there's a way of looking at them with the logic of the Bible. I'm going to show you a diagram, which I think you looked at briefly last time. And I want you to look at it again and look at it carefully, because the two diagrams I'm going to show you actually really represent a massive sort of contrast in thinking. So and there's a box on either uh, sheet to uh, write the diagram down. This is how human logic tends to work. Most of the time, we put ourselves in the big picture on the horizon. Our self fills the horizon. So we talk about the things that we want, the manner in which we pray, the extent and regularity and the content of our prayers. And so here is the Christian calling on God in prayer. We pray for our needs and our desires and we let them determine the content of our prayers. Help me get that 
Work done on time. Help me get to that meeting safely. Help, safely. Help me avoid that problem. Help me to have enough money to get through. These prayers can be summed up like this. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. The world is about me and my needs. I'm at the centre of my prayers and God is giving me what I want him to give me. And if my basic need is comfort and God sorts it, then my world is sorted and the world is a happy place. And so the impression this way of thinking gives us is this. That prayer begins with us, convinces God to do something and the outcome is God's will. And that's how prayer surely works. Otherwise, what is the point of praying? The impression given by this way of thinking is as long as we get our bit right, as long as we pray in the right way, we do enough praying for the right thing, then we can persuade God, we can induce God to act on our behalf so that what we pray for eventually happens. This is the human way of thinking. It begins with us. It influences God and the outcome is different to if we hadn't prayed at all. But crucially, this is not where Jesus begins. So we're going to come back to that diagram uh, later and look at a better way of thinking about it. So come back now to uh, Matthew chapter 6. And let's take a closer look at the way Jesus teaches us to pray. And you'll see that it's in two sections, each section containing three requests or areas of prayer. And the first section... I've put on the sheet praying for God's plans. The first half of the prayer is really about God's plans for his world. And the second half concerns what we need as part of those plans. So let's take each (coughs) request in turn under those divisions. Firstly, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow God's name? Um, Anyone use the word hallow during the course of the week? Hallow. Or maybe you've used that word, but hallow. Um, it's one of those strange Bible words, isn't it, that is hardly ever used. In fact, I think there's two ways that the word tends to be used. One is in the Lord's Prayer, and the other is Halloween, which is the night before All Saints' Day, which has now come to mean kind of the opposite of what hallow really means. Because to hallow something is to make it holy. So if holy is the adjective, then hallow is the verb. To hallow something is to make it holy. So we're asking in the first line of God's prayer to make his name hallowed, to make it holy. But what does that mean? Well, with all of the requests in the Lord's Prayer, the only way we can possibly understand them is to read them in the context of the Bible. And that means keeping two things in mind. Firstly, how are they rooted in the Old Testament promises of God? And secondly, how are they fulfilled in Christ, in his death and resurrection? So each of the six requests have to be put through that kind of filter. How are they rooted in the Old Testament and how are they fulfilled in Christ? Now, when we look back under this first heading to the Old Testament, we see a great concern for God's name running through the whole Bible story. In fact, this might be one of the most sort of 
underrated, undernoticed threads of the Bible story begins right back in Genesis 3. When the first man and woman sinned, God's name was defamed. It was unhallowed. Why does that matter? Because God's name stands for his character, his person. And you remember what happened in Genesis 3? Satan actually came along and slandered God's name and his character and said, God doesn't want the best for you. His intentions are not really good. He cannot be trusted. And that began the snowball that became the sin and the fall that ruined the world. Then Israel, God's people, were gathered together to make his name great. The idea was that by giving them the law... They would obey God. They would then live at the centre of the world as a kind of miniature (coughs) example of the kingdom that was lost at the fall. And so the world would look on and see what it meant to live in a kingdom that hallowed God's name. It's exactly what we saw in Malachi this morning when Joe referred to Deuteronomy 28. And the laws that God had given Israel were to bring this kind of blessing which demonstrated to the world what it meant to live with God as king. That's what the Old Testament is really about. And yet you know the story. The story is that in the Old Testament, the people continue to rebel and disobey him. The world looks on and instead of seeing God's name hallowed, they see God's name mocked. And so Satan wins right to the end of the Old Testament. And so in that context, can you see that this first line of the prayer is a prayer that God would put that right once and for all. It's not just a a vague kind of prayer that God would be, you know, recognised here and there and people would be kind of nice in the way they speak about God. It comes at the end of the Old Testament story. And this is a prayer that God will finally sort out the universe so that his name at last is hallowed. In other words, to say hallowed be your name is a prayer for the undoing of the fall once and for all. It's a prayer, therefore, for all who damage God's name to be put down. It's a very serious prayer to pray. Well, how does God do it? Well, come to the second line of the prayer, your kingdom come. If you think about it, line one and line two are very closely related. If God's name is defamed, unhallowed, when people rebel against his rule, his kingship, his name will be restored when his rule, his kingship is restored. And so it is the coming of the kingdom of God that is the great Old Testament hope to hallow God's name. Look at Ezekiel 36 on the sheet. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, that is, bring the kingdom, restore the temple, restore the people, everything the Old Testament looks forward to, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. So all the hope and expectation that the prophets have been looking forward to throughout the Old Testament, centre around the kingdom of God coming to earth. And here we see that this is for the purpose of God's name being restored among the world. Well, when does this promised kingdom come? Well, Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God in fulfilment of the Old Testament promises. 
In the Old Testament, the kingdom is revealed in Israel. But in the New Testament, it's Jesus who brings the kingdom by that great rescue plan of his death and resurrection. It is through Jesus that God comes and restores his kingship and dwells with his people. And so it's important to remember that Jesus is teaching this prayer before he goes to the cross. It's very easy, isn't it, just to kind of lift it out of context and say, well, here's a, just a, a prayer that Jesus taught. But actually, he's praying this on his way to the cross. And so the first time the prayer is going to be answered, your kingdom come, is going to be when Jesus dies to complete his work, to bring about that kingdom of God. So what does it mean then to pray your kingdom come now? Well, the third request helps us to grasp that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This again is linked to the previous two prayers. Taken out of context, it can sound a bit vague, can't it? As if God is just asking us to pray for a nicer world. You know, less wars to happen, more recycling to be done. Everybody to be a little bit nicer to each other. But read that line again in the light of the first two requests. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? It is for his kingdom to come. The kingdom that has come in Jesus and will come finally in the future. In other words, your will be done on earth in heaven is a prayer that really defines our entire history and the history of the world. It is a prayer that asks God to help people to put their trust in the gospel now, to live with Jesus, to enter the kingdom. And it's a prayer that looks forward to the end, when Jesus will bring an end to this age, when God's will finally will be done, when the kingdom comes. In other words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a big prayer. It's a prayer For the return to Genesis 1 and 2. For that distinction between heaven and earth that we now take for granted to be removed. So that we now live on earth with God face to face. Which is what the Bible promises. It's a prayer that salvation will be grasped now. That judgment will come to those who reject the Lord. It's a prayer for sin to be finally wiped out. Well, that's the first half of the prayer. And I want to just sum up by saying three things. Firstly, it's a very big prayer, isn't it? Those first three lines that just trip off the tongue so easily. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is to pray for nothing less than for this world to come to an end. And for a new world to begin. Second thing to notice is that none of this prayer really is about us, is it? That's not to say that our needs don't matter, as we'll see in a moment. But the content of the prayer, the direction of the prayer, the thrust of it is about God and his name and his holiness. This is not in the first instance a request for power to meet our needs to fulfil our desires and goals, to give us even the things we need. It's a prayer that reminds us very firmly of our place in the universe. It's a prayer for the glory of God to be seen by all. It's about him, his glory, his honour. And thirdly, 
These prayers belong exclusively to the Christian, to the child of God. The three requests are broad and general, but we've seen that they are each rooted in Old Testament promises and fulfilled in the work of Christ. I was taught this prayer at primary school. I went to a state primary school, not a Christian school. It was a rough, uh, sort of very ordinary primary school. And we pray this prayer every single day. And I guess I was taught this prayer because it sounded like the sort of thing headmasters want their children to say. Pray for a better world. Be nice to each other. But this is actually a prayer for the children of the Father who long for the Father's glory to be revealed. It's a prayer for those who put their trust in Jesus. It is actually, if you think about the ultimate Christ-centred, gospel-driven, politically incorrect prayer that you can pray. It's a prayer for Islam to be defeated, for atheists to be judged on the last day, for vice to be exposed, for sin to be shamed. It's a prayer for an apocalyptic cataclysm which joins all the persecuted church in crying, come Lord Jesus. Now, no one told me that when I was sitting cross-legged on the assembly floor in year three. But that's what it is. It's a distinctly Christian prayer that looks to the future and says, come Lord Jesus, bring it on. Well, what about us? Where do we fit in? We'll come to the second half of the prayer the things we need for God. And it's important that the things we need are put in that specific context. Firstly, give us today our daily bread. Again, it just sounds like a nice thing. Of course we would pray that, but again, it's rooted in the Old Testament. From the fruit in the Garden of Eden to the rescue of Noah in his ark to the story of Joseph saving his brothers from famine to the provision of manna in the desert to the promised land filled with milk and honey, God has always provided the physical needs for his people. And so to pray, give us today our daily bread, is to put ourselves in that line of biblical history with the people of God that God has provided for. And to say that just as they were dependent on God for food, so are we dependent for our physical needs. This is why it's the mark of the Christian to be thankful. This is why we give thanks before a meal, because we are acknowledging our dependence on God. And to pray for this in this context, therefore, is radically different, isn't it? Than for me just to pray for an Audi because I like the look of it. We've just prayed for the kingdom of God to come. And so it makes sense that we will pray for our daily bread, our daily needs, so that we can keep going and make it into the kingdom when it comes. Secondly, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. Again, the roots of this in the Old Testament bring to mind the sacrifice that deals with sin and reconciles sinners to God. And again, in the context of Matthew, Jesus knows that this is going to be worked out in his death on the cross. It's going to be his blood not the blood of the animal sacrifices that will open the way to the kingdom through the forgiveness of sins. And so this is actually the key that unlocks the door to the kingdom. If the kingdom of God coming and God's will being done on earth is about the coming of Jesus to judge, then what we need to get into that kingdom is the forgiveness of sins. 
And if we've received the forgiveness of sins, then we will forgive others too. Something that Jesus expands in 14 to 15 to make the point. And lead us not into temptation, finally, but deliver us from the evil one. The translation temptation might be a little bit misleading. Better translation is testing. It's a prayer that we might stand firm and persevere through the trials of this life. Just as Israel were tested in the desert, as Jesus was tested by Satan. So we are going to be tested in this world. And we are to pray that we won't give up, that Satan won't have the last word, that we will make it to the end, the most important thing. Well, there's the Lord's Prayer. I hope that's uh, been helpful. Very familiar lines if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But each line rooted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, not about us, but eventually about us. And to get that context right and that order right, very important. So let's go back to what I call the direction of prayer. Let's look at this uh, diagram in a better way. This is... uh, A biblical perspective on prayer. And I hope you can see that it's it's a completely different way of thinking. So again, prayer is vital for the purposes of God. It is quite wrong to conclude because God is sovereign that we need not pray. It's right for Christians to, to stir ourselves up to pray and to pray boldly. It is actually quite right to say... If the gospel is to prevail in Lancaster, then we must pray. If people are not being saved, it could be because we've not prayed enough. We do have responsibility to pray. But human logic and our kind of tiny brains can never really work out how to accept that responsibility and how to think it through at the same time with the knowledge that God is totally sovereign. We, we struggle with this, don't we? Same with salvation. How is it that, that I can choose to be a Christian? That I can make that decision? And yet the Bible tells me God has chosen me from before the creation of the world. We always want to assert our free will in opposition to God's sovereignty. Human logic says either or. Either if my prayer is going to be meaningful, God is in some sense limited in his sovereignty Or if God is unlimited in sovereignty, then prayer has no real effect. That's the way we think, isn't it? Either or. But in biblical thinking, it's not either or, it's both and. The problem is our starting point. The Bible, in fact, begins with God. You see how this is different to the first diagram, which began with us and then tried to convince God to do our will and the outcome is the plan of God. No, the Bible, as we've just seen, begins with God. It begins with his plan for the world. And his plans that culminate in Christ. And then having revealed that plan, God incredibly invites us to participate in it through prayer and through evangelism, through spreading the word, through service, through calling people to be saved, but particularly We get to be part of God's plan by prayer. That is the proper direction of prayer. It begins with God, who reveals his plan. And in his mysterious, sovereign choice, he works into his plan 
the prayers that we choose. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty working together in that perfect way. And that's what the Lord's Prayer teaches us. It teaches us to begin our prayers with the purposes of God. To make all our prayers in that direction, in line with God's will that he's revealed to the world. Has that given you enough time to write the diagram down? Well, let's conclude then with the direction of your life. The Lord's Prayer teaches us the gospel plan. We've seen that God's plan has been revealed in the Old Testament. It's been realised in Jesus. And now, in the outworking of that plan, prayer is not persuading God to do something he is unwilling to do. It's about enjoying the privilege of being caught up in what God is already doing. And so what this does is it encourages, doesn't it, to put our praying into that context. You can pray for the small things, as I've said before in this series. You can pray for the car park space, for the lost key or button, whatever it is you've lost. God knows the answer to these things. But it's also about praying for the big things, for closed countries to become open to the gospel, for the conversion of that hard-hearted friend. Those things that only God can do for the change of your own heart. But whether it's a small thing or a big thing, the Lord's Prayer gives us the direction of our prayer. That we are praying in line more and more with what matters to God. And that, that though, raises the question of the direction of your life. So we've seen, haven't we, that God is taking this world in a particular direction. What God really cares about is his reputation, his name. He has worked in Israel to demonstrate something of the kingdom. He has brought Christ to the world to die and rise, to bring the kingdom about. He is now working his plan out in our world through gospel proclamation and church building. And so if that's what God is on about, then that's what we are to be on about. Our lives are to be conformed to the direction that God is taking this world in. And so this talk, which is kind of about what to pray for, it's just given us one big answer, hasn't it? One big answer. Pray for those things that occupy God's mind. The hallowing of his name. The coming of his kingdom. And therefore it gives us one big question. What is the direction of your life? What is occupying your mind, your hopes and dreams? Are you busy doing gospel work? Are you doing kingdom work? Is your life revolving around the glory of God in Christ? Or is it revolving around your own glory? And the answer to that question tells us what we should be praying for. It is the direction of your life that matters. That will determine what you'll pray for most. If you're engaged in the work of the gospel, if you're occupied with God's glory, if that's what matters to you, then that will be the direction of your prayer.